evening, friends. We are gathered here today for another episode of Coffee with Friends. This live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. As always, you may cease listening if you are distressed. With that being said, I'd like to welcome Pi, Rebecca, Billy, and patriarchal daddy because apparently we need one of those good evening <laughs> good evening <laughs> how y'all doing i'm doing awesome i'm glad you invited us yeah well i'm glad y'all agreed to, to come do this it's it's kind of amazing but i'd like to ask each of you to go around and introduce yourself in 30 seconds or less Should I start? I don't, yep. I don't know if it's just, okay. I'm Carly. Um, I was born LDS. I I went through a lot of childhood abuse. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to really say. <laughs> well, that's why do you, do you speak out actively against um, abuse inside of an organization or an institution? No, it's I've tried, but it just becomes too triggering. That's why I've tried to, like, with TikTok, is push myself and put out videos to try and get myself to speak out more. I didn't realize it would be so hard to speak out about it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. I spent some time after I was shunned from that, um, doing kind of uh, high priestess Wiccan kind of things. And then I got involved in Buddhist recovery. And for me, yes, I do actively speak out mostly against um, sexual misconduct in spiritual communities and for CSA survivors. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm so glad you could join us. Danica? Or Danny, sorry. That's fine. My name's Danica. You can call me Danny or Patriarchal Daddy. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, like Carly, was also um, born into the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I, I speak out as often I can about the um, about the church and the. The wrongs that are going in the church. I honestly only got brave enough a few months ago to start posting publicly on Facebook and even on TikTok. It took a couple of years, but here we are. And thank you for that. I'm so glad you could be here. We are also joined by Tara. Would you like to give us a brief introduction to yourself in 30 seconds or less? Tara? Hi, my name's Tara. <laughs> I think that, that might cover it. Um, that's actually harder than I thought it would be. Um, I come from a Southern Baptist background. Um, and am I supposed to add if I speak out against abuse? 
Yes. Okay. So, um, yes. Although, ironically enough, um, in general, not necessarily specific solely to churches. I volunteer with our local sexual assault and domestic violence agency. Um, Mary lets me put my name on research that she's leading on child sexual abuse among Anabaptists. And um, I teach courses related to violence. Thank you, Tara. So glad you could join us. Hi, Barbie. Um, we are asking everybody to introduce themselves in 30 seconds or less and tell us like, if you speak out against abuse. Um, my Carrie, I'm just about to introduce myself, right? You said? Introduce yourself, yes. Who yeah. are you? Um, my name is Barbie. Uh, I grew up in one of the Swords and Trooper Amish communities. Uh, and I also live with a rare neuromuscular disease, which is why my speech is the way it is. Um, I don't I don't publicly speak out. Just been kind of kind of dealtling in it a little bit. Thank you. I'm so glad you could join us. And now we have Billy. Is Billy still here? Yes, I'm here. I'm having some connection issues. I think I'll do better if I don't turn the camera on for a minute. But uh, yeah, I come from a Mennonite background and um, I love rabble rousing and causing the Mennonite organizations to fear because they make wrong choices. And uh, so that's kind of what I get involved with. Um, I'm excited to say I no longer work for my Mennonite employer, so that's exciting news of late. Congratulations. Some of the people on the panel know all about that. Yeah, we kind of do. So thank you for all of that. I, I kind of wanted to give a little definition of like, how research in Australia has recognized that a party to proceedings in domestic and family violence related cases may use a range of litigation tactics to gain an advantage over or to harass, intimidate, discredit, or otherwise control the other party. These tactics may be referred to in legislation and other bench books and by judicial officers as malicious, frivolous, vexatious, querulous, or an abusive process. I have put the link in the comments for our listeners who want to see that and who want to read the entire text. But I've also looked up like the definition of sy systemic abuse. And the one that I've been able to find what it means is basically saying of or pertaining to the general system or the body as a whole as a systemic thing. So as a societal thing, when we start thinking about that, so Pi was telling us she doesn't really speak out so much. And why is that? Um, I think it's been really difficult to speak out. One, because growing up, it was always, we weren't believed. We were always silenced. Um, also, there was a stigma that if you are abused, you must also be abusive. 
And so I had a lot of people that once they found out that we had been abused, we could no longer like that was cut off because they thought I'd be a bad influence on other kids. <laughs> um, another part is realizing that my abuse wasn't just my story. It's my whole family's story. And we're on many different paths of where we are. And some wanted to speak out and others haven't. So trying to navigate how to do that while trying to respect them but okay. also do what I need for myself. And then just society, yeah, it just, it, it's very triggering. So uh, I've tried to push myself with like TikTok videos and talking about my experiences and I didn't realize how much of a toll it takes out on me. <laughs> and so just trying to find that balance to be able to speak um, without also causing myself more damage because yeah I don't know my body reacts when I speak out about it so <laughs> that sounds like a significant barrier against speaking out is not being able to separate out like what happened to you or what was the, what your experience was and then the way that society responds yeah. and then also how intertwined it is with your whole family thank you Rebecca, what is the biggest barrier you've experienced in speaking out actively against um, abuse? I think I've, for some time, not put my face on, on anything. I think people know where I stand because I work with trauma, but um, and I, I kind of focus on community traumatology, the systemic issue that trauma creates in, you know, groupism. Uh, whether it's from in the religious aspect or the communities that are created outside of it. So I don't, I, I just, I don't like my face out there. This is one of the first panels I've ever done. You know, I, I do things in the background, but I also like, uh, like the previous person said, I do have like, tr you know, reaction, bodily reactions when I talk about these things, because even though that was something that happened in the past, my body, forgets that it's not experiencing that currently. And I think that is a problem for a lot of us. Plus, you know, I think there's also sometimes, you know, you can say a certain amount of things, but you also don't want to cross certain barriers in relationships to put yourself out there too much because you don't need that extra attention. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes complete sense. Thank you so much. What about you, patriarchal daddy? What is your biggest barrier? Um, you ever like regret knowing everybody in your southern Utah town that you live in? I've never lived do, in the southern Utah town, so no. Because when you do start speaking out, you lose all of your friends. Oh, but Mormons don't shun, I thought. <sighs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they they shun a lot. And they like to reach out and say the kindest things to you. I don't sense sarcasm in that. What are <laughs> what is an example of the, the kindest things? <laughs> oh um, let's see. Do 
I want to go back to the hate family tragedy, that most recent message that I got. Oh, that was lovely. Do you remember what I'm talking about? That I think woman I have... that, met, that reached out and um, told me that Tasha um, should have got her husband into counseling after his dad killed himself. And I was like, this is, this is not, this is not a, not a conversation I'm going to have. And she said, and I, and then she said, well, there's two sides to every story. I said, if that gave Michael permission, oh, she called, she called Tasha two-faced. I, 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 you know, my friend, I said, if that gave Michael permission to kill Tasha and all her children because she didn't get him into counseling. I'm like, I'll never, I'll never be in a situation where I can have this conversation. So yeah, that, I don't know if you guys heard about that. That happened in my, in my neighborhood this January. And I got to see all the fallout from so much after that. Didn't he murder his he wife and his wife, children? His children and his mother-in-law. Just yeah. around the corner, just around the corner. Five kids. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It has to be really difficult to speak out against. Like it seems. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sometimes gets kind of scary, but after having my second friend killed by her husband, um, I'm, I'm not going to stop talking. I'm so glad you're with us today. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. What about you, Tara? Um, so some of the things, some of the barriers, I think Rebecca mentioned similar barriers. Um, but one of the things I've found is if, if I am supporting one person, people are mostly okay with that. Mm -hmm. They are not okay with me saying, okay, well, this person is living in poverty, which is limiting their access to the resources. Like people say they should just leave. Well, how do you mm -hmm. just leave when you do not have <laughs> a credit history or a job or access to your own driver's license or birth certificate? And so the biggest barrier I have found is that people are more accepting if I speak out about what is happening to one person, um, which I have done. But in my various roles, I'm also speaking out against the poverty, the racism, the sexism, the... Um, code of silence, which kind of encompasses all of the above. Um, and that is more unacceptable um, to Can people. you elaborate on code of silence for me? Um, abuse isn't something we talk about because it's in the family. What happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Um, and so it really is kind of a, we don't talk about it 
code of silence in terms of it's just a family matter. It's not like I shouldn't be concerned if one of my students is being abused by their spouse because that's a family matter. Or if you belong to a church, would that also then apply if the church says that if you shouldn't be talked outside of the church members because it's a church matter? There's that, and then, then there's the layer of particularly if it is a male abusing a, a, somebody assigned female at birth, um, whether that is their child or their significant other or sometimes even siblings, like that is his job. Like it, it's not just that it's a church matter. It's that he's being a good man. Um, rarely I've also, she's being a good mother by teaching her children the proper way to behave. Well, no, she's she's abusing her children. <laughs> yeah. But within some churches, that is actually appropriate. Right? That that is considered the the way to raise your children. And so it wasn't just not to be taken beyond the church. It wasn't it wasn't a problem within the church. Child abuse is biblical. Yes. Yeah, yep, that part too. And, so, and that, that creates the code of silence around this is not something that is a problem. Thank, Thank you. you. Hmm? And Billy, what would you say the biggest issue has been? Um. I would re-echo a lot of what others on the panel are saying. Um, you know, I can only speak from my context and my experience, but um, in Mennonite world, we, we feel like everything needs to be kept within the faith. And to talk to those outside is seen as violence toward the group. Everything is about our collective group against the world. And so everything right or wrong needs to be kept inside. And as you can imagine, um, any deviations from that, whether it's a spoken rule or not, um, there's punishment for that. And there is this absolute institutional and sometimes self-preservation of people in power so much that they're willing to sacrifice people's very livelihood or safety. And, um, and you know, that is very prevalent and it's the norm. Ooh. What do you mean when you say it's institutional or even livelihood and safety? So institutions, everything from congregations to healthcare facilities to educational facilities and, and organizations, um, the denomination itself, all of those things when they're related when a church houses their own staff, when a church provides their own health care, when a church provides their own education, and the church also provides the abusers. <laughs> All of those places then are codependent on each other for survival. And so 
they work together as a team to silence anything that would ruin their public image, which allows them to um, be profitable. Because most of these church organizations operate not only under the sweat and monies of their own members, but also bringing lots of money from the outside. And so their face of goodwill toward the community, anything that might interfere with that good in it, good image and ability to make money um, is really what it comes down to. As I look at many situations that I've even been involved with in my own life or um, have you know, become aware of and got involved in some way, I often see this coming back to, this will hurt our ability to effectively make a profit uh, and we would much rather just be quiet or we'd much rather set the ax on those who, who would interfere with anything going that direction. Um, despite what the truth may actually be, you know, we know that that's not always true. Um, you know, time shows us that, well, all of these um, different organizations and there's abuse and then that comes out public, uh, usually that doesn't help them. If they would have been right honest and dealt with the situation, not only would there'd be less people harmed, but there would be honor involved. Um, but they don't seem to understand that. That's interesting. Don't most Mennonite institutions like the colleges have like peace and social justice programs? I have to ask. You know, Anabaptists as a whole love to say we're peaceful, loving people. We don't go to war and we don't resist evil. But that's a load of crap in a lot of ways. I believe the doctrine is good, um, but it's misused. And yes, we can, we can talk about uh, mitigating or mediating conflict with others, but for some reason we have no, no, ob no ability to actually use those skills on the ground in a real conflict. Is, and that, I find mm -hmm. that interesting. It's all theory because when it comes down to the facts on the ground and especially Mennonite to Mennonite conflict, they're not capable. They shut down and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. It's all this um, false front that adds to this image of we're just a pure innocent people seeking to do well and we seek, you know, uh, a more docile life than others, um, which when you find out what's going on inside of the group, in, inside of this closed circle, um, a lot of times it's way more violent than what we see going on in the so-called uh, world that we see, you know, the worldly people, you know, they're the ones who are supposed to be um, dangerous and they're the people who are supposed to be perverse and they're the people who are supposed to be um, reprobate and robbing and stealing and pillaging. But I see that happening in our own circle. So I wonder, you know, what makes us special compared to them? That's a really good question. Thank you. And what about you, Barbie? What is uh, the biggest? I would... Okay, my biggest personal barrier is that my abuse that I experienced was not, was very mild compared to um, the abuse that other family members that I know experience. And then just systemically not having a social safety net uh cps not believing you or cops going to the bishops and then like mental health professionals uh well also sometimes 
uh, refuse to acknowledge the systemic systemic abuse rather than the individualistic abuse. Um, yeah, that happened to me a couple of times with some concerts. That sounds absolutely horrific. When you go to a mental health professional, it is the last thought on your mind that this mental health professional is going to refuse to acknowledge that these systems are at play. Like you were talking about the Swartz and Truber Amish group and you're talking about the theology. Because wasn't it preached for in, in church? Didn't they preach in church about spanking their babies, breaking the will of the baby in the high chair? Uh, I don't remember that. I mean, I was 15, and as you probably know, most of their, most of their sermons are in higher German, which uh, we aren't really, I wasn't taught higher German, so I didn't really understand a lot of it. But oh my god. to be sure of us, when I wasn't really talking about any specific type of abuse that was occurring right at the moment to a woman or anyone in my community, uh, I was just talking general, generally to her about the abuse that my extended Amish family members, especially the women, face. And then she's she responded with, well, you got to remember that we live in America and those women have a choice. They chose that life. Uh, so I actually, that really ticked me off. And like, I obviously didn't feel like it was a safe space anymore. So... um. Yeah, I didn't go back there for therapy, but I did stay a little bit longer with that therapist to educate them because they did seem moldable and open to education. I just wasn't able to talk about my specific situation, but I did want to stay and educate her a little bit. Well, education is important, right? And... Good for you for not talking about your specific um, situation with people that you felt unsafe with. That's yeah. important. Did you have something else you wanted to say? Uh, yeah, just that um, you can't, like, I have a really hard time getting people to talk about systemic abuse. People, there's some people who won't acknowledge systemic abuse and will just be like, no, but the individuals should have done more. They should have done this or they should have done that. But then there's some people who will acknowledge that yes, the systems have to change, but they will quickly steer the conversation towards, well, but this individual. And I'm just wondering what other people think. Like, why is that? Why try to switch the conversation? 
You want to take this one, Tara? <laughs> this this is the danger of, of Mary and I being on a live stream. Please tell, please tell me to stop talking if anybody wants me to stop talking. Um, because in some ways, focusing on the individual makes other people feel better about their own lives. That person did something bad, and so that is why they are being abused. And I'm not doing anything bad, so I will never face anything like that. Um, the systemic scares us because that's not as easy to say, well, they should have walked away because then you've got to be willing to address the poverty that stops them from walking away. And yeah. we don't want to do that. Um, and so Mary, Mary has heard me rant <laughs> about the focus uh -huh. on individual versus the the conditions under which people are trained yeah can i just say something so i kind of think some of it is because of the culture out here i think because it is a hyper individualistic culture and i sometimes it seems as if people their instinct is just to blame the individual because that blame not necessarily the individual that's being abused yes that happens too but like just like the one person that is abusing even though it's a whole system yes because often if they're able to look at it and separate like the person from like if you remember the james and mary mass case uh ethan and courtney those four adults beat a four-year-old child to death in missouri look it up they beat a four-year-old child to death because they said they were exercising the demon out of the child the child was four years old the child didn't have a demon, and they grew up in an Anabaptist church, all four of them. In churches, some of those churches they grew up in had rooms specifically in the church that actually was what's called a spanking room. And in one of our first podcasts, we actually had guests on who talked about that, that church and those teachings and the spanking rooms. But if they were to acknowledge because the churches were quick to separate themselves from those people's actions and say, oh, well, they're not a member of this church anymore. They were excommunicated. But they were raised and trained to believe that to love their children, they must beat them. If my child does not submit, if my child's will isn't broken, I must beat them harder. I must grab a different item and beat my child. And so if you acknowledge the validity in the teachings that are actually causing systemic abuse, because that is systemic when it comes from the underlying teachings, in my opinion, uh, when you acknowledge that, then they have to acknowledge that they also belong to a system of oppression that perpetuated abuse. 
They would have to acknowledge their complicity in enabling abuse. They would have to look at themselves as being part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And as long as they can look at it as an individual thing instead of part of the organization that has created this type of abuse and allowed it to thrive, they can pat themselves on the back and send out thoughts and prayers and pretend it doesn't happen. Sorry. Thank you. Continue, Tara. Yeah. Well, I was I was going to kind of add one thing to it, going back to something Barbie said. Um, I am big on you do not need, like, okay, I, I teach college students. I am big on you do not need a college education to do advocacy and support work, although I think you need some for- form of training in oppression and coercion and and systematic and systemic control. But one of the things that I have also seen that is part of this is even within a community of survivors, we mimic these systems of oppression that we have seen just in our broader communities. Abuse is abuse is abuse. Like, you don't get bonus points, for lack of a better word, for having experienced more severe forms of abuse. And and, and we rank people. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we put them in, in some kind of hierarchy. Like, I understand your type of abuse, so I'm going to listen to you. But I don't get your type of abuse, so I'm going to call it not abuse, and I'm not going to listen to you. So even within yeah, survivor groups, you see that hierarchy in... Mm-hmm and types of like points awarded for experiencing different types of abuse. And I am going to be careful because I will go off on my soapbox on that because I've actually, I've absolutely had students who have been abused and they'll say things like, Oh, it wasn't that bad. And it, yes, it is not the trauma Olympics. <laughs> That's in the chat. Um, but we treat it as if it is. And- well, and, you know, I'll add to that, that I've had many, many, many survivors tell me, well, my abuse wasn't as bad as yours. Please don't do that. We're not measuring trauma today. Tomorrow doesn't look good either. Thank you. I, I will stop there or I'll go on all night about the problems with <sighs> replicating hierarchies of oppression within advocacy work. Oh, thank you for that. With that being said, let's pivot for a second. Hey, Sam, can I catch you up? Can you introduce yourself in 30 seconds or less, please? Yeah, sure. My name is Sam. I go by he, they pronouns. Uh, I am a survivor of conversion therapy, was raised as a Mormon in Provo, Utah. I'm a Mexican-American, and I'm married to my husband for the last 12 years, and that is me. I I help run a survivor's group for other conversion therapy survivors every week. 
Thank you. I'm so glad you could join us. And I'd like for you to answer our first question and our second question as well, if you can. So the first question is, what is the biggest barrier you've experienced in speaking out against systemic abuse? That was kind of hard for me to think about because I couldn't decide between gaslighting externally or gaslighting internally. So I guess I'll just have to say gaslighting in general. I think that's been the biggest problem. People that you tell your trauma to saying, it's not that bad, just get over it. it you know, you're fine. I don't see that as a problem. Or on the other side where you're like, you were just saying like, oh, I didn't go through it as bad as it could have been. My trauma doesn't matter. I should just get over it, right? So I would say gaslighting is, is probably the biggest. So what is your purpose in speaking out against systemic abuse? My purpose is to make sure that what happened to me never happens again to anyone else. Because as long as it's happening to other people and I have the power to stop it, uh, I feel like that not only hinders my healing from trauma, but it feels like a thorn. It's like a pebble in my shoe that I can't take out if I'm not doing something about it. And I know that I can't fix the world, you know, all by myself, but at least taking some type of action feels like it's not this constant annoyance or thorn in my side or pebble in my shoe. So what I'm hearing from you is directly opposite of like what Pi was telling us where he said, if I remember right, that they said that it, it causes the stress in their body to be able to to speak out publicly. And I, I think like that is valid. And I just want to point that out because sometimes as survivors of specific types of abuse, we can have different experiences and different outcomes and different things can be helpful. And I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. Thank you so much. And at, at different times too, because there have been times I felt exactly yes. that way. Yes. And sometimes I need to take breaks. Like I relate to what Sam said about it feeling like a thorn, like a pebble in your shoe. I, I feel like it's a burning in my chest, but there's that. There's that. But with that being said, our next question is, why do you think it's important to address systemic abuse versus an individualistic approach? And I'd like to start that off by asking Barbie, because Barbie you are the reason we are having this conversation and I'm grateful for it. Thank you. You're muted. You're muted, Barbie. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Um, we can have to address systemic abuse. Because uh, if we don't, then abuse on an individual level is going to keep being enabled and it's going to just keep happening. And I see it a lot. I see it a lot with my own, with my experience with being Amish. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. What about you, patriarchal daddy? Why do you think it's important? To speak out as the system and not just as one person, right? Yes. 
because when we can finally get through to people that the system is causing this and it's not just one bad Christian apple, then maybe they'll see, they'll see that there's a lot of dots that are connecting. There's a lot of similarities that are happening in all these news articles. There's a lot of stats coming out of these Christian communities that are horrifying. And until we can get that through to people, they're just going to be able to listen to one story at a time and accuse and assume it's just one bad apple. I don't know how else to word that. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right about people saying it's just one bad apple. I mean, I I I I could write a whole book on the one bad apple. I'm just saying. I'm sure some of you could write a whole book on that. But thank you, thank you. And what about you, Sam? Why do you think it's important to address systemic versus individual? I, I feel like if you're only focused on individual, you're only solving half the problem. You're treating symptoms, but not the cause of the problem. And then you're also ignoring that the system is in individuals. Like I don't see it's nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. It's not spirit versus body. It, it's mind and body, right? Like it's, it's never just one exists on its own. It's synergistic and it, it, it impacts each other. As soon as one individual changes, the system as a whole, even though slightly, does change and vice versa. So it's, it's like if you're only focusing on one half of the problem, okay, I'm glad you're focused, but you also do need to remember that you have to be attacking both or you're, you're just treating symptoms and not actually fixing anything. Thank you for that. You actually made me think of this thing by Desmond Tutu, I think it is. It's like, it's not enough to just pull people who are drowning out of the river. We have to, sometimes we have to go upstream and figure out why people are falling in the river and drowning in the first place. Thank you. And Billy, why do you think it's important? I think it's important to look at the systems uh, because it, what it, what I really see happening when we look at individual situations only, we're also asking the survivors of misconduct to bear the brunt of fixing it. Um, and they have already had enough of a load put on them by what they experienced. And also, people perpetrating abuse, sometimes willful, sometimes not, they, there's no chance for them to have any reformation if they're in a system that enables and reinforces their behavior. Um, so, for example, um, you know, I can speak about the Anabaptist lens. We, we have this culture of, you know, we, we obey up the hierarchy, the line of the people we're, we're responsible for obeying. And we are very good at obeying the systems that we have in place. So, you know, if we made right choices and adjusting those systems, it seems like people would be really well off. But, um, but getting them there, we know won't because the people that are in power in those situations, uh, things will collapse because they will no longer have the manipulation that they have. I have a question for you. Have those people in those positions of power benefited from the very systems at play that they refuse to 
dismantle or change? Well, exactly. That's why they're not interested in changing them because you can make them aware. I've talked to over 50 different people that would be, you know, in the hierarchy over me within, within Mennonite circles. Um, and I, very few of them will acknowledge and, and, or at least demonstrate that they understand. Um, but even those who do understand, and they may be sympathetic, they recognize the risks to them is too great to take action, so they choose to be quiet. And so those kind of, those kind of systems that, that lead people who even seek to do right to fear for their safety also, um, that tells me there's something else, there's something else involved. And it goes way beyond the individual systems of abuse. Abuse doesn't have much chance to thrive if it's in a social system which educates people properly, which has, you know, very simple concepts about what is you and what is not for you to do, and has very clear outlines about people's choices and their ability to choose whether they participate in an activity. I mean, every last part of that, um, but just simply people having the awareness and the belief that they can make choices for themselves um, drastically decreases that. Whereas I think it, it only makes sense that these communities of faith, um, the systemic abuse is greater because people aren't at liberty to make their own choices, especially in high control groups. They're, high, they're called a high control group for a reason. And that's because every choice you make, whether it's where you will go to school, what kind of vehicle you drive, how you will dress, um, sometimes what you will eat, all of those sort of restrictions, um, you know, the focus is on all of these things um, and playing the puppeteering game to look good. And it's all a big distraction from what's happening underneath. And so um, to bring us back to the question, that's why the system is what we have to attack uh, because we are going to run ourselves ragged if we only just chase these individual situations. Because as Sam said, we're chasing a symptom rather than the root cause. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate it. What about you, Tara? Actually, I think I'm going to start kind of with a combination of, of what Pi has said and Billy just said and, and some of what Sam, actually all, everybody has said. And this comes this comes from my background in murder capital of the state in low income. Like sometimes surviving, just surviving, just being there, is the act of resistance. Like survivors should not have to bear the brunt. Going back to what Billy said, they should be allowed to live their lives on their own terms. They should not feel like they have to constantly be demanding recognition and demanding change. And so on, you know, on one hand to me, a, you know, survivors living is a statement. Survivor surviving is an act of advocacy. Um, and I think working on the individual level, helping survivors find the resources they need 
to do that. Like, I think that is worthy and that is valid. And that is part of what I do. But it does not matter how many individuals I help. Somebody is born every second. And so as individuals are supported into leaving, there's a steady supply of, of new people being abused. Unless we address the systems. And that's, you know, like, I, I think of myself as doing both. But working with individuals is not going to stop the flow down the road. It supports them and that is wonderful and that should be done. But it's a band-aid. It's kind of a bad way to look at it, but it is a band-aid because somebody else has already been born into abuse because it's the system a, hasn't changed. Are you saying it's a short-term fix to a long-term problem? Yes. And for the individual, like that, in some ways, that's a horrible thing to say. To the individual, it's vital. Like, that is how they survive. That is how they gain the resources um, and the support. And so for the individual, we cannot lose sight of somebody's got to be working with the individuals <laughs> because for them, it is not a band-aid. It is the solution. But if I want to see a reduction in the amount of violence, then I've really got to look long term because only person A, person B, person C we're going to run out of alphabet letters right? because that is a long term problem that has not been addressed yet. So. Yep. Thank you. And what about you, Rebecca? So this really spoke to me because I've been spinning in my head about how I see this systemic problem for some time because I went from, you know, I get my understanding is most everybody here has come from like some sort of Christian fundamentalist thing. Well, I was like, I'm going to be the rebel. I'm going to do something different. And everything different is still based in similar ideologies. A lot of these people come from Christian backgrounds, people in the 70s that created new age, whatever, and all these things are supposed to be new and rebellious. And you're like, I'm doing something different. And you're like, but are you though? No, you're not. You're bringing the same bullshit from that background to this one. And so the problems are not like only in one organization they are larger and as mary in your experience when you go against the the justice system it is not set up for you to get your justice so it's a really it's it's a, it's a passion project of mine and i i'm all about you know that what i see as a huge problem and i talk about a lot is something i call toxic forgiveness and it's something that has seeped into every 
religious spiritual organization, the idea that, okay, you have a victim, but the organization or the group decides that you need to just forgive this person or they collectively have forgiven them. Okay. And so if you do not forgive them in the appropriate time as a victim, you are shunned or looked at as not godly, or you're just not practicing hard enough. It's all bullshit. So, so, so do some of those new age practices use the term, let it go. Oh, for sure. Like, I, I mean, I can get into specifics of things, but there's going to be some upcoming things like books and coming out of colleges about some of these newer organizations where the same systemic problems, you know, it, it goes from one large organization that it seems we focus on at a time. Like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their special, the Amis have their special, you know, there's this special. And so until we bring like all the problems together and be like okay this is not just the the thing of the moment there's a reason why this problem keeps coming up all the time from basically what is the same teachings just wrapped in a different package so i do have to say this because i feel like this is important and because i can be long-minded too so (laughs) y'all tell me to be quiet if i go on too long But there is this thing that I have experienced from some new age practitioners that tells me, basically, you chose to be born into that family. The inherent victim blaming, the inherent repackaging, the inherent, like, I can't even, I can't even, it makes my skin crawl. (laughs) I see you laughing. (laughs) laugh away. Well, the the other thing too is, you know, a lot of times in the communities that are created outside of these organizations by individuals, I'm sure like all of us have had that we, that leave, there are still predatory individuals that invade those X whatever communities. So, and they're still even outside of a community that's created, you know, outside of a religion, there still seems to be some kind of hierarchy that's like understood, that's very confusing. It's whoever has the loudest voice or the most views is somehow like the person at the center of things. And I think there really needs to be more of a collective approach. Like this panel. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you, Mary. And what about you, Pi? What do, what do you, why do you think it's important? Systemic versus individual approach. So like what everybody said, but I want to kind of take a different approach with it. And it's a kind of a desensitization that happens. Because on a systemic level, it just, we tell these people, oh, that's little, that's little, that's little. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and keeps getting more and more accepted of the types of abuse. And kind of like, um, now this is probably a little off, but just with this new, sorry, with what just happened with the Passenger 8 blogger, and just kind of talking about with the modesty culture um, and how it's a lot easier to hide abuse when we blame people for what they wear And it's, you'll see it, like, even if somebody is wearing something where you can see the abuse, the bruises, everything, well, then it's suddenly a, you're a bad person because, or you deserve that, because look at how you dress. 
And so it's this weird acceptance on a large scale that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger of what's more accepted. And that causes major ripple effects to everybody. And like, we don't even see how some of these things affect all of our lives. Like we were talking about, um, does it benefit higher ups? We've noticed that even when something doesn't benefit them and actively hurts them, they'll still want to do it for the, the idea of power. Kind of like with them filling in, uh, making colleges, you have to pay for it instead of being free. They are willing to hurt themselves in order to control and hurt others. And that's not sustainable in any way. <laughs> it just... And we just don't realize how many small things that it's actually hurting us to in in this idea of power and to kind of hide abuse. Do Mormons have their own colleges, right? Brigham Young University? Yeah. Do you think that is part of their systemic kind of like use of their tools and resources to... 100%. Okay. Do you, you want to expand heavily, upon why? You are very heavily shamed if you don't go. They have very, very strict codes when you do go. Um, I didn't go. My husband didn't go. We were very badly shamed. We were denied help because we didn't have enough faith. <laughs> we didn't choose the Lord's school. <laughs> um, they absolutely use that, uh, especially if you use in Utah. It's it would be better for you to have gone to BYU than Stanford or any other big college for them, because that means that you're in line with what their beliefs are. And that's the big thing that matters. It doesn't matter how well you're educated or anything else. And that's why so many ex-Mormons that leave, we're seen as worse than anybody that has never been part of the religion. Is because now we're untrustworthy. Now we're a loose cannon. They don't know what they can expect from us. And yeah, it's very much a use of power and so, control. So can I ask a question? Oh, go ahead. You knew it was dangerous to give me this length. Um, I can mute I, you. I'll just have you know. There is that. But um, I kind of have to say, so... I am worse than non-believers because non-believers just haven't seen the light yet. I am within a church professing equality and, hey, let's stop abusing our children. So that's kind of, it is worse when you walk away or when you don't align than when you never did believe. Um, but the question I had is more, have we made child abuse a form of entertainment? You you mentioned um, it's eight passengers, right? And and the Duggars and however many shows they had. Where I assume if you watch the show, you probably recognize some signs of abuse, but we kept watching or society kept watching because we were so enamored with this idea of being able to control 
our own children. <laughs> and, I don't and, think it's just control. Um, a lot of with LDS that I've seen, it's if they see other people doing worse, especially if they don't feel that they're in line with the religion, that bolsters them. It yeah. makes them happier because it kind of validates them that I'm better because I'm doing what I'm told I'm supposed to do. And this is a bad thing that's happening to them because of myriad of reasons. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you showed up to church late one day and something horrible happens, well, that's just validation that my religion is correct and I'm doing the correct things. So it's yeah. almost joy we've, we've pushed that we need to have joy in others' misfortunes because it somehow validates our yes. religion. Yes. Yep. We keep so, talking about these TV shows and children are being abused on on YouTube or on TV, and it's it's now a form of entertainment rather than something that we take seriously. Which is kind of that ripple effect I was talking about. That it's now we're okay with it because we're desensitized. <laughs> And because society tends to just look away, they look away and they tell themselves it's an isolated incident. It's a, I think that's where you were going with this, Pi, is you were saying this is an isolated incident. As long as we look at it from an individualistic approach, like so in the 19 years that I've spoken publicly against like child abuse and the child abuse in the Amish community specifically, um, the one thing that I have heard over and over and over is that, well, that's just an isolated incident. It doesn't really happen. What about the children that are still there that I, I can't even, but you're right. That is why we have to address it on a systemic level at the same time as it's being addressed on an individual level. In my opinion, the collective answers of all of you is just, it's the truth. So the next question is, what would be the best outcome of speaking and fighting um, systemic abuse in this country? Anybody want to volunteer for this to be the first? Um, I'll go. Okay. I think uh, if this country was get rid of uh i don't know maybe take a step back on religious exemption because a lot of uh systemic abuse gets hidden behind uh the idea of religious exemption so i would really like america to ease off on that that would be a pretty big, I, I would count that a win if that happened, Barbie. I would love to see that happen. Yeah. Any of you would like to see that happen? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I think a lot of behaviors that otherwise are would be considered criminal or at the very least a civil issue are somehow whitewashed under the guise of religion. And it's, that's weird to me. Yeah, I I just, I wish it wasn't so, but it really is. 
So you you got some, Billy? You ready to go? Sure. Well, I, I wasn't meaning to go next, but um, I think what I the theme I've seen, and it's kind of being revealed here in the talk, is, well, these religious systems are good for society. Good for society equals they're making money, and that, you know, contributes uh, to, to society. But the same sort of misconduct that is carried out by somebody who is less wealthy, who chooses not to belong to any organization, or who chose to leave such an organization, um, you know, they will be prosecuted and they will, you know, they will suffer consequences sometimes for things which they didn't do or they didn't cause. Um, but of course, you know, if you belong to the good group and people within the groups know it. Um, so one time with the youth, uh, we were together talking about how, you know, when we drive as an entourage, somewhere after church, we can go any speed we want because they can't pull us all over. And it's like, well, that's interesting. Or if we do get pulled over, well, if they see one of our sisters with the head covering on, or if it's a carload of girls that gets pulled over, you know, they, they're innocent Mennonite people, you know, they, you know, they generally don't give them a ticket. Um, and so it's interesting to me to see, to see how that, how that has played out. And not only, not only is that privilege extended, but they know that they're being given a privilege. And, and it's almost as if, well, you know, we're righteous people, so, you know, they respect us. Um, I know Mary has even heard some recordings of lectures within um, the Holdeman Mennonite Church where they recognize privileges they've been given, and they use it as more, more fuel to bolster their control and example to the young people of why you should be good, you know. If you, you know, if you want to avoid getting drafted to go to war, you know, here's how. And I remember when we went to the Capitol and we met with those federal agent people and they were in tears because of just how true our church was and, and all of this. I mean, it's propaganda. And because we don't know any better, we believed it our whole lives. Um, so, yeah, that, that those systems, their power extends and interweaves. Um, even into the greater society, and I think it's why we see such a rise in Christian nationalism, and why it's not being, um, you know, why it's not being thwarted so easily, um, because while well, those people live within systems that are so enmeshed and so controlling that, you know, they they also are given a pass way too often, and they have such power that you know there's really no way. For, for standing against that. And so it just further enables, and it's, it, it's a vicious cycle, and it goes back to why examining and, and working within these systems of abuse is so important because, just like we said earlier, you know, those individual cases are just a result of all of these larger systems. And, and one area that I have interest in studying more about is um, different types of societies and their structure and culture. Um, you know, what is abuse? What forms of abuse take place and how are they dealt with and how do they compare? Because abuse is abuse is abuse, as Tara said, and abuse happens. And abuse isn't necessarily tied to any of these specific groups, but what happens after definitely seems to, there's a lot of correlation there. Yeah. It really does. Um, but what do you want to see as the outcome? Well, I think 
the outcome, and I don't know the answer to get there, um, but I would re-echo what I heard earlier. We need to absolutely stop giving any any sort of religious or even ideological um, system a set of dominance because um, it's not necessary. Um, and it's interesting how we have a culture in, in the United States of priding ourselves on the so-called sense of freedom and set of values which separate religion from the state, yet we see so much more of that than many other nations that would be comparable in, in size. And so, you know, what, what's really going on there? Um, but I think, you know, the, the end that I would like to see is we need to make targeted action to prohibit that um, from having a place and have very large campaigns with education about what's happening in these communities and how they aren't above the law. And, you know, it's something that's so enmeshed. I mean, it's not going to be an overnight, um, you know, unless something happened and we all just got picked up and dropped on Mars and, you know, we eventually extinguish. I mean, the United States is going to be how they are for a while. But, um, you know, my part, can I, can I speak up against things? Can I make someone question what they're doing? You know, I suppose that may be all that I can do while I have breath. But, um, but in the end, you know, I would, ha I would dream of a society that just gives people that, those individual liberties that we claim to give and live by them. And, you know, in the end, a lot of these religious systems, you know, they are here and they, and they are so large here because of the way the government supports the way they operate. Yeah. What about you, um, Sam? What would you see as the best outcome? So I had a flood of thoughts. I will try really hard to condense them. As we were talking about systems, I realized when you talk about systems, you're just trying to like, you know, take a step back and see everything as a whole. So I tried to see our conversation, take a step back as a whole, what is going on here. And I was reminded of one of the first lectures I had as in my training as a therapist, we talked about something called the addressing model. And the addressing model basically just says, here's this bunch of letters, like your ability, disability, uh, sexual orientation, all of this stuff, right? It lists all of these ways that you potentially could have privilege or not have privilege. Basically saying just because a majority sometimes exists, that majority is going to build a society that privileges them and anyone who's not in the majority will then be uh, not having privilege, right? And every society is always going to have a majority ergo systems of oppression are always going to exist. So trying to say like, I want systems of oppression to be gone, I think isn't really practical, but I think what is practical and what I would like to see is for everyone to have a solid understanding that there are people who don't even believe system of, of oppression exists and that it's not a problem we have to solve, right? And I think if everyone could acknowledge that by being a human, you inherently have privilege in some way and that it's your responsibility to just be aware of that. And when you can do that as the victim of a system of oppression, suddenly that responsibility to just be better and just get over it is gone because you realize it's not my fault. And then when you are the privileged, it is your responsibility to always be watching for 
Am I holding my privilege correctly? Am I making space for those who don't have the privilege that I do? And I think if everyone was just doing that, then whenever systems of oppression pop up, we'd be able to hold that lightly and say, what can we do to mitigate the impact so that systems of oppression where found can always be worked on and always be cognizant of that. And I think that's the best that can be hoped for because I think even that would be difficult because it requires everyone to take responsibility. And just as humans, we just want it to be easy and ignore everything, right? And it takes effort and work to own your privilege. And so I think the best we can get is to just people to maybe understand that privilege even exists. And that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think uh, it's important though, but so far we're talking about what we want to have um, removal of like religious uh, liberties for people. And we want people to have education and we want people to acknowledge their privilege. Well, I have privilege, but I digress. We're going to ask Danica, uh, Daddy Danica, what would you think is the best outcome? Um, no best outcome, but what I, what I, I guess what I would like to see. How how could we go into the middle of these communities and teach people what child abuse is legally? Safely? <clears throat> is that is that ever going to be an option? I don't know. That, uh, yeah. Sorry, did you have something? No, I was going to say I don't know either. I have, I don't know. I have no idea. Because, I mean, like, there can be outreach efforts. And I would say this because if you follow my work, you know that we have created, in collaboration with professionals, printable brochures that have been circulated within some Amish communities. There are Amish people that have use those booklets, especially the how to report booklet. So the idea is that maybe we might have to look at it a little bit differently, but maybe we also have to be very careful when we create content or curriculums so that we're reaching people where they're at with language that seems familiar and doesn't alarm their nervous, nervous system. How do, how do I get a hold of that so I can look at that for different areas like here? Because we've got the FLDS, and we've got, you know, and we've got just, I mean. How do you get a hold? Like, oh, it's on W. Yeah, it's just so like it's on, it's on what? www.themisfitamish.com. Okay. There's and a resource. All of those. Yes. And then, and then, yeah, we, it's all different languages, obviously, from Mormon to Amish. But, <laughs> but they're written in English. They're just specifically targeted to um, bridge the, the language barrier, mm -hmm. to yeah. bridge that gap. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe that could be an idea. I don't know. Is it realistic? Could be. Might not be. You never know. Might not until be. You try. But I mean, if it, if it could be. Yeah. What about you, would... Pi? Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. What about you, Pi? What would you want to be an ideal outcome? I'm just going to focus on one thing because there's way too many. 
Um, I'm not good at explaining stuff, so I'll just explain why. Uh, today, I've had two interactions. One was uh, my best friend's child at school. Uh, another kid told them to kill themselves. And it's, we were talking about the different things because, of course, she reacted and wrote to the principal about it. And just, it's kind of a, they were saying if she would have responded back with something like, I really wish you would instead of how that would be that she would get in trouble, but the person doesn't. And just thinking about when I was a kid and being picked on and bullied and what I've seen with my kids and how the society in whole reacts to that. It's this, there's a bad rap of being a victim. And we look down on victims so badly, it's so systemic. And then the other instance today was that uh, one of my kids really wants to go to a different school. It's kind of more focused on arts. And um, one of the other parents in our neighborhood was saying, oh, that's where all the bad kids go. And all I've heard from all the kids when I went and kind of just saw is that they're the victims. They have been badly bullied, but now it's this thing that people associate them with problems. And I think if we could, I don't know how realistic it is, but to try and get that switched and stop having it be that we looked at victims so badly that they're just problems and that there's something that is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's almost like when you're the victim of bullying or the victim of a crime, it's almost like there's so many people in society who tend to look at you as less than, as you're incapable of making good decisions, you're incapable of having a meaningful life, you're incapable of even making fucking decisions for yourself. They project their ideas, their wants, their needs right onto you. And they do that to us as children. They do that to our children. They do that to people who are adults who are speaking out. It doesn't matter what your age is even people use their children as tokens to gain attention on social media which is where tara was asking about well are we just now looking at child abuse as as um entertainment people exploit their children people exploit their children and people go watch it because why yeah. it's all based on that type of ideology the ideology, the idea that if people, if people are being bullied, it's partially their fault. Inherently, those actions and those labels and those, the way they dehumanize those children, that, that is inherently part of the problem. That well, belief. You were saying, I guess you're, whatever. <laughs> Who knows? But um, you were talking earlier about uh, New Age religions and how it's a you chose to be. Mormonism was very much that. I was told that a lot as a child, that I chose to be abused, that that was my choice. Or the second option was that I was, I was bad in the pre-existence and this was something that I needed to go through to become a better person. And so it's like, either way, it's victim blaming. Because the one it's way dehumanizing. Poses, so deal with it. And the other way is, well, you were a bad person. 
and I'm not going to stop you. And in that sense, people just do. They, they will say, well, you are bad. So we were told that a lot. Well, have you just thought of just being a better child? Have you thought about listening to everything this person tells you to do? Uh, have you ever thought of just understanding your abuser and not pissing them off? <laughs> like, oh, have you ever thought of just forgiving him or her or them? I'm just saying. My bad. I couldn't help myself. You can't move forward until you've forgiven. Oh, no, the healing it's process starts when you forgive. This is for us, not for them. It's for us. <laughs> <laughs> we went there. Oh, boy. Well, Rebecca, you got anything to say about what your ideal outcome would be? I mean, I think there just needs to be loads of accountability and some, I, I know individuals that are have come into doing justice work for these particular communities. And so I, th I think they're very few and far between. And there's not very many people doing these kind of things. And there needs to be more of those individuals. I think you'll see some of them when you're doing like your religious trauma conference, there's it is, there are people out there that do this, but the, the information isn't really out there. But I think, number one, there is this idea, because I've done recovery work. A lot of recovery work, when you look at like 12-step, I'm not sure if you're are still based in Christianity. So there's this whole making amends thing. Again, it's the problem of putting it off to this imaginary thing or this forgiveness aspect that allows you to take absolutely no accountability and the victim to like you were saying pi to basically feel bullied and blamed like it was that it's, it's weird the dynamic that's been created so is that from religion is that it's societal like i i can't really pin down why that is the case but i just know with what I, where I came from, I just always had like a really, I was always like the moral compass. I, I every, when I was growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, I was like, there's something really wrong with this. And this is not, doesn't, it never felt right to me. And so I'm very empathic in communities. I can pick out the people that I know are going to be a problem. And I've had to do that. And people be like, I'm so sorry, I didn't listen to you. And unfortunately, sometimes you develop that kind of radar because, it's it's a problem and but I'm more than anything I think there needs to be a lot of accountability and a, a form of redress available that's valid because I mean it doesn't seem like there's a lot of accountability giving people a slap on the wrist isn't actually accountability and furthermore it's also not vindictive or grooming to want to see institutions or organizations held accountable for the abuse they have covered up or perpetuated it's also not um, <clears throat> being sinful towards your abuser to report the abuse to authorities and have, have them be investigated and prosecuted that's that's not sinful <coughs> thank you i'm on my horse today <laughs> hi tara it's your turn would you like to tell me what you think would be the best outcome so some of this is is going to be kind of the a flip side of some of the things that sam said and some of the things that everybody has said um you know sunday school answer that is a phrase from my childhood i don't hear it much up here but the Sunday school answer is absolutely in an ideal world, there would be no abuse. 
are we setting realistic ideas <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah. This, this is the flip side. Like, just now, like, but that's not realistic. Um, it's not, but I'm not quite ready to give up on that that vision. Um, and part, my sister has a seven year old. And thinking about that, the world that a seven-year-old child raised in Florida in a Southern Baptist church and the Florida today, like, I'm not quite ready to say I know what is going to happen. I'd like, I'd like to believe that that will be dressed. It's not going to be, but one step towards it, we live in a box. Most of the time we don't even recognize the box that we're in. Like my box as a, what, I guess, middle-aged 45 year old white woman with PhD is, yes, um, is totally different from, from the box of a 45 year old white woman without a PhD. Or what about the 45-year-old white woman that's queer? How about that? Or about yeah, the 45-year-old? That, that's a discussion anyway. for another day. I digress. But most of us don't know the boxes we're in. And I look at my students. Um, this semester, I'm teaching a course in Intro to LGBTQ. We're you know, talking about civil rights, and we're talking about history. And because people coast to use Sam's terminology, like you take the easy way, even survivors, as they build their their lives, hopefully, away from the abuse, we follow routine, we coast. We have no idea about the laws that provide us the rights that we think are inherent because we are human beings that can be taken away from us. You know, and so Mary and I were talking about Obergefell v. Hodges. And the fact that if that's overturned, the law that was passed to protect marriage equality doesn't provide full marriage equality. Um, and not only will we not recognize our privilege and our oppression if we don't begin to recognize the boxes within which we live, our rights are precarious. They, they really are. Unless you are Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, until they get dementia and they are exploited, you know, all of us think we have inherent rights and we should, but we don't. We have legally provided rights that can also be taken away. And ask the 45-year-old black woman with PhD about that. Um, and I think 
if I if I can't have my ideal Sunday school answer, helping people recognize the boxes that they're in. And like when I teach a course in APA style and I'm telling people where to put commas and periods in their references, I am bringing up equity issues as examples. Like cite a reference for this journal article on equity in some form or fashion because otherwise we're gonna sleep through losing our rights i guess that that's kind of my my soapbox like okay are you ready for this i don't know i I? have a question i have a question bad things happen when you start with that but okay so i have a question and my question is this so when you start talking about rights, right? Like, so we have the, our, our, our country has separation of church and state. Is that a. Christmas is a federal <laughs> holiday. <laughs> our country practices separation of church and state. I'm Not right in there. Utah. <laughs> Christmas is a federal holiday. Like, I, don't, I don't want people to lose their holidays, but Christmas is a federal holiday, so. I want to say um, lose, I just think more into a better holiday that's more inclusive and amazing. We could have a winter festival, right? <laughs> well, and this is, okay, so this is where I do get into trouble, because Christ, as a historical figure, was not born in December. Certainly not on December 25th. He was actually probably born closer to the date picked for Easter. But when the lovely emperor (laughs) promised that he would convert to Christianity and therefore convert all of his subjects, he didn't want to piss them off too much. So he picked, like, pagan, pagan holidays. So Easter is Easter in part because there were pagan holidays in East in, in April ish focused on rebirth and resurrection and, and growth. And so this is why Easter is Easter. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I do not, I do not belong to a Southern Baptist church anymore. I belong to United Methodist church. And if somebody asked me my faith, I would, I would say I was Christian and that scares the people that lead the churches that I attend often because I'm worse than the heathens. Christian, Christian, you're a heretic. I, well, and, and I am, um, and one day should I stand for God? She will say, good job. Oh, you just referred to God as she. Oh, I go back and forth. She, he, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with it for a variety of reasons, but it is the height of human arrogance <laughs> to interpret a supreme being, all-knowing, omniscient as a human male. Like, yeah, come on. Mary, I knew I'd like your other friends, too. <laughs> and that's, but I mean, Christians Christians in this country don't have to know their faith. Like, it, 
with with some various exceptions, particularly you know again Protestant. Oh, I'm I'm Southern Baptist. Okay, what's that mean? Well, I'm a member of the Southern Baptist Church, and well, every Sunday I go to church. Okay, and hey Tara, can you tell me why the Southern Baptist Church was founded? Have y'all heard this? Y'all, you want to keep these poor people here all night, don't you? Because now you're just picking questions yeah, that you Tara, know. Tara and I are on Eastern time, Mary. <laughs> okay, my bad. I will, I will go off for days on this because, as I once told Mary, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and we never talked about our history, ever. And so a few years ago, somebody says something about, well, they're racist. I'm like, well, okay, yeah. Then they said, and they're built on slavery. And I'm like, no. The origins of the Southern Baptist Church came about with with Civil War. And um, Southern and Northern Baptists prior to to the Civil War were really kind of equal in terms of is slavery morally correct then as civil war is coming southerners are like no slavery good slavery good slavery is god's will god's order and so with split we're now two different countries both of which have separate constitutions which i didn't learn about in history and so the southern baptists explicitly were formed to support slavery and slaveholders being missionaries. Which is horrific. Thank you for explaining that. But they, they I did apologize about 20 years ago. Where's their reparations? My bad. Oops. They apologized. Like, and this, you know, going back to some of the things that lead to you need to forgive. An apology <laughs> is all you should expect because you should forgive there is no need for reparations beyond an apology oh like okay well the southern baptist church has done spoken we all we all heard it from terror um oh yeah yeah and the southern baptist can be up in arms because I'm no longer a Southern Baptist, and here I am talking about them, but whatever. How dare you? I know, right? Did I miss anybody on, like, what your outcome would be? Did I miss anybody? I got everybody going once, going twice, sold. Okay. Now we're going to talk about if y'all have any parting words to anyone in an abusive situation today in 30 seconds or less. Go ahead, Pi. Um, uh, mine would just be do what you feel is actually best for you. Don't feel shame if you have to do what you have to do to survive. Um, yeah, try not to put the blame on you because it's not your fault. Thank you. That means a lot. What about you, Rebecca? I think, again, like what I think it was Sam that said, you know, not to gaslight 
yourself or allow others to do that to you. I know that term's starting to be overused, but it is in fact like my therapist says to me, she says, I think a lot of your basically toxic shame you hold is because you weren't believed. So there are people out there such as myself and Mary and other people doing resources availability that can point you in the right directions. So, you know, you do like, like Pi said, yeah, do what's best for yourself. Thank you, Rebecca. What about you, Tara? I do think it's easy for people to say, well, just leave. And that is actually not always the safest thing to do. Um, and so I do think it's important that people know that they are the best judge of what is safe for them. And if that, if that's staying in an abusive relationship for now or for 10 years or forever, you are the only one that, that can choose that and decide what is best for your safety. But I also want to encourage people to, again, the degree that it is safe to begin to have a network. Yeah. You know, and that network might be the national um, in domestic violence organization, which has resources. And, and I think at least at one point had a chat feature. So like, even if you are in the planning stages, it's not safe for you to leave. There are still resources available to you and, and using them in the safest way possible. I, just, I would encourage you to remember that there is a way still to build a network. Yep. That's a really good point. Thank you, Tara. What about you, Billy? Um, I would echo a lot of what Tara said. You know, as somebody who, like, it's been about a year since I, you know, escaped one level you know, in some ways, it's kind of like a video game. So, you know, I left, you know, a playing group, and then I went to an assimilated Mennonite group. And, and while there are some good people, ethical people, you know, the congregation that I belonged to the last year are wonderful. Um, Mennonite Church USA at large is just as awful in some ways uh, as the plain church especially because they don't have the excuse of ignorance. You know, they do have college education and they do have people who will come and tell them a thing or two, or they have educated people within who choose to take advantage of the plain people um, and, and speak on their behalf. And, you know, we have people like Jeanette Harder and others um, who, you know, think they're just doing great work when actually they're harming people. And because it profits the Mennonite machine, you know, they're allowed to continue. Um, and so, you know, for me now leaving that entirely uh, is crazy. I never thought I would take a job at a United Methodist Church. I never thought I would have a job in music. I never, you know, the crazy stuff. I never thought I would move to a city. And here I am. So take the steps you need to be safe. For me, leaving at first was I don't know anything about the world. So I'm going to go to the closest thing, even though I know the assimilated Mennonites are just as fucked up as the others. <laughs> That's where I felt safe going at the time. Um, and I still have many, many friends. I still theologically feel very Mennonite, but there are certain distinctives that I'm like, hold on, let's question that. And questioning is okay. And I'm going to support your right to question and not agree um, because 
whether you agree with me does not make any difference in, in eternity for you or I. So let's talk about it because we've got things to learn and grow. Um, so do, take the steps you need. You know, that is so important. Listen to messages like this. I only left because of one of Mary's hosted podcasts um, because I learned so much from other people who had been there. I never knew anybody who left because to talk to those who either have left and they come close enough, you know, to a church service or even if they come back, you, you're not allowed to talk about what happened. And obviously somebody who has chosen to return hasn't really escaped it. And so you, you just know that if I leave, I'm just wandering in the wilderness. So, yeah, take, take what you need to be safe. Um, take baby steps if you have to. But um, just keep leaning on those people that are supportive and that show that they are safe. That's a really powerful message, Billy. Thank you. What about you, Sam? You know, in my work with conversion therapy survivors, I am most consistently saying the problem that we deal with is we think we deserved our torture. And we believed that it was selfish to assert ourselves. It was selfish to say no. And we have a hard time looking at our abusers and saying, no, it was wrong and I deserve better. And so I think my advice for anyone who's in an abusive relationship is to remember that it's not your fault and that when someone is telling you you're selfish, it's because they know that you very likely take ethics very seriously because you know what it's like to be harmed and you refuse to harm others and they're weaponizing your heart and your ethics and your empathy against you and that you do not have to believe them you get to take your empathy for everyone else and turn it around and and care for yourself first and you will help others significantly more if you stop that abuse by caring for yourself because if what's happening to you you would not stand for someone else then it's time to remind yourself that you are someone else for someone that's very powerful too what about you danny do you have a message? I did, but I saw a squirrel in my mind just went. <laughs> okay, squirrel. What did the squirrel say? The squirrels are pretty cool. The squirrel might have a message. Yeah, what did the squirrel say? I, I feel like it was a message. Come on. Maybe that Danica shouldn't speak right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if Danica if Danica doesn't want to speak, that's fine. What do you have a message, Barbie? Um, I would just say do what you need to get immediate resources. It even. This might not be well received, but in my situation from years ago, if I won't use the person's name, but if the person would have lied, and it would not have been a terrible lie, um, if they would have just said, I'm afraid of the 
number of people in my house, the local domestic violence shelter would have helped us. Um, so there was a, there's a misunderstanding. I don't know. It's cultural ignorance. But anyway, the local, a lot of these shelters will um, locally not take you if you're afraid of the people in the community, but it's not the people in your house. So they didn't take us. But we as Amish people were afraid of the people in the community and their solution was just to lock the doors. That's not, it's not that simple. So lying sometimes is okay. And also pretending to be a Christian um, in order to get resources is okay. I think it is. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing. It really is not okay. Um, I, I know that sometimes there can be um, a lot of difficulties for survivors to access resources specifically from Amish communities. I've had um, DV advocates tell me that they were trained to turn away, to send the Amish survivors, refer them back to their communities for support. And I don't agree with that. That is inappropriate. That is wrong. That is unhelpful. And so I, I say that Amish survivors deserve support. You deserve support. Your family deserves support. And you shouldn't have to lie about it. But if you have to, I yeah. don't know. It is what it is. You got to do what, what is going to keep you safe. What about you, yeah. Danny? Okay to lie. Yeah. What about you, Danny? You're ready for me now? Yes. Okay. If the squirrel so has left. The squirrel, the squirrel left. I, if I could tell anybody anything, it, um, your story is powerful. Your story is important. Your story deserves to be heard. Your story deserves to be shared. Your story deserves to be listened to. Anybody that can, I know there are people who can't right now, but when people can start seeing red flags because of the education we're giving from your stories, so much can change. That's all. Be safe. So can I add one additional thing? It's kind of weird. Congratulations, Billy. It's very odd to say that. Um, and and I think for survivors, the the journey is like an onion. One, it might make you cry a lot, but but it comes in in layers. And so, one of the comments, you know, how how do I know if I am in an abusive situation? And, and I think all of us could give There's a definition of abuse. Um, and actually, I think, Mary, on your website, you have the wheel, don't you? You're muted now. 
So actually, on my, I didn't know Tara was going to address it, but I was going to have us talk about that question because that question is very important. Um, on the website, themisfitamish.com, if you go to the printable resources section, there's a wheel of, of abuse that is listed there. It was specifically developed for Amish and Anabaptist people, as well as other brochures, one of which is types of abuse, and it kind of gives like definitions and overviews of abuse. And then there's also links for you to connect with on the homepage of the Misfit Amish, where you can find um, like national numbers for support if you are, in fact, in an abusive situation. Yeah, but I think, and, and this is more specific to sexual assault, I've I've sat down with college students who are talking about their relationships and I'm like you've been raped. And and they they do not recognize what has occurred to them as as rape. They got drunk and that was their fault, of course, and so they asked for it or well they said yes last week, so that must mean they're saying yes this week. And and they don't they don't realize they've been raped. And I think abuse is There's the same. marital rape also. Yeah. And and I have students who don't believe that's a possibility. And I'm like, no, putting a ring on it does not mean <laughs> consent forever and ever, amen. Um and rape is a form of domestic violence in in partnerships. Like rape can be a form of domestic violence, but we don't always recognize in the moment that what we have experienced is rape because it doesn't fit our stereotype of, of what rape is. And so kind of going back to that question of, you know, how do you know if a situation is abusive? And this is this is not necessarily a pretty answer or a comforting answer. But sometimes you don't right away. Like it is a journey. It's it's like that onion where you listen to a podcast like this one. Or you read a blog post and you go, hmm, that's weird. And so maybe like you begin a process, kind of going back to what Billy said, like you you leave one aspect of the abuse and you're like oh there's still abuse and so you leave that aspect and like I said it's it's very odd congratulating someone for you know leaving a situation but to put Billy on the spot going back to you know to what he said this is part of the process it's not one and done and and I think For survivors, that's important. Like, it's not one and done. Well, that also Ab doesn't. I don't think it's ever one and done. It also doesn't mean that just because we escape one abusive situation, we can't end up in another abusive relationship or in another abusive or coercive controlling group or even in another high control group. It simply means that sometimes we need to encourage and foster our ability to one, make decisions, to two, critically think and question things, and to three, take action in a way that is safe for us. 
And that's where Billy's talking about taking those steps and, and doing those things. Because when you do that, then you tend to go further than you maybe thought was ever possible. And maybe your life has meaning after all. Maybe your life is allowed to have meaning. Do you think? Well, that's just it. It's not denying any deity power or even the truth of any particular church to say that, well, my life has meaning on its own. I don't have to join myself to any group or organization to have meaning or purpose in my life. Because what I found is a lot of what I was told is my purpose when I decided to, you know, to be a Christian hasn't been what, what I'm called to do. So often what I'm called to do is to kick back against the very church that I'm supposed to obey and frustrate the people inside. And, and, and even when I came, you know, to my most recent place, I told them right from the get-go, if these things happen, I'm not going to be quiet, you know, and they, they did not really understand what they were accepting <laughs> in that um, because, you know, in the end I had this meeting and I, you know, I said, here's a list of things that did not get resolved. And you expect me to come back to you now and trust that you'll do something about this situation. You know, it was just so, it was just so obvious to me that they didn't, they, they didn't understand that they never actually did anything about these different problems. Um, and, or, well, you just didn't like the resolution that we came to. And it's like, well, no, I did not like it because, you know, it's still harming people. Um, oh. You know, and when we add more, more, you know, perpetrators to our to our roster, you know, that's a problem. Um, and so, you know, that's really what finally broke the spell at the last. And it also, I realized there's not much I can do from inside of here, so it must be time to pull back the veil um, and let others see what's happening. Um, so that way. You know, there might be consequences because one thing particularly, you know, um, a lot of Anabaptist groups, um, you know, their most faithful supporters are their own people. Whereas with Mennonite Church USA, most of their young people haven't been born because they don't have some of the regulations on birth control and family planning that the others do. But also so many of the young people have left because they've been disillusioned. You know, the disillusionment is, is, has fallen away. So they are relying on outsiders to come into their midst and support their organizations, especially the educational institutions. Um, it started first with the boarding schools. So many outsiders would drop their children off at these boarding schools run by Mennonites. And you can just imagine what all is happening there. And then colleges, it's a lot of the same now where we have people recruiting them to this idealistic, um, wonderful utopian place where you know, we love everybody and we don't, we, you know, we don't believe in violence. And then they come and they get raped and pillaged and lied to, and they're pissed. Um, but, you know, they're young people. They don't have the privilege of being listened to um, when they do try to get help. And, you know, and it still continues. And so, yeah, those, those points of don't stop talking if it's safe. You know, there was a lot of things that I, 
although I was pretty bold, there were some things I didn't say while I still worked for Goshen College because of what, you know, what consequences would come. I had a few meetings where they said, you know, you should be careful about how you represent the college, you know, that you represent the college. Well, it's like, yeah, but your public image is not my problem. You're the people who did wrong, so you should do something about that. Um, you know, they didn't like my answer either. And I, and, you know, and so I, one time I was bold enough to say, well, you know, you didn't like how I responded when you, when you made wrong choices. So I suppose we're even, um, but yeah, those, those situations are so, so valuable in the lessons learned. And, and, and I just see, you know, it wasn't the best place I could have gone perhaps, but boy, did I take some learning moments with me and the experience and insight. Um, and, you know, that will serve me well with any context I find myself. And it gives me, um, you know, a lot, like Sam was saying, you know, you then have, you know, have experiences that, you know, you've learned something and that information can be valuable for somebody else too. Um, and so sharing that, uh, sharing that experience is, is important. Um, sometimes yeah. we don't do it enough. <laughs> yeah, question. that's true. Going, going back to the, the original question of the commenter, like we could probably all give a laundry list of if someone does this to you, it is abusive. If someone does that to you, it is mm. abusive. And I, but I think abusers are constantly reinventing and, and coming up with new <laughs> ways to, to control. So I wonder if kind of based on, on how Billy described things and, um, well, you know, my, my own opinion, because of course the world revolves around me. Um, but something is abusive if it, if it makes you feel smaller or lesser um, than another person. You know, if someone is doing anything that makes you feel like you have to shrink or be quieter or smaller, then you need to consider that, that you are being abused because you should not be made to feel smaller, weaker, or lesser. You know, again, as you're learning, that laundry list might be helpful, but you know, what are, air tags did not exist a couple years ago, and they are now a, a primary way of surveillance and monitoring. So the laundry list might be good as an initial step, but learning to recognize abuse as something designed to make you feel worth less until you feel worthless. Yeah, pretty much. They said, thank you for addressing the question. But I think the, the abuse, that definition, thank you for that. I really hope that I would like to give my my words of advice. Uh, I got some good words of advice today. But you know what? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. We are all just human beings. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter 
how you're feeling. If somebody treats you like you are the dirt beneath their doorstep, you are still a whole valid human being. You are worthy of every single human right that everybody is worthy of because humans have the right to food, safety, shelter, water. You know, we have the right to pursue a meaningful life as long as we're not harming other people. So you, no matter how you're being treated right now, are worthy of being treated like a whole valid human being. And no matter how alone you feel in the world, you're not alone. There are always people who will understand and there are always people out there. There are organizations out there 24-7 where you can access support and resources. Uh, I will put some of them in the comments. And I am so grateful that I got to have this wonderful panel. Barbie had to go. Billy's phone died. So I guess I'm just going to say good night. See y'all later. Have a good one.